is in the book of Philippians. I'll give you just a real 10 cent summary. We are pretty much in the last stage of the book of Philippians. And before I left, I'll kind of re-hit on this again this morning, but before I left, we started a, a, a series in a series, you might say, that talked about the key values of, of who we are as a church. In other words, we were studying this idea of what it meant to follow Jesus well, to look to the people that follow Jesus well. And in our church, we do that in three critical ways. Uh, gospel, meaning we want to know the truths of who Jesus says he is in the scripture, follow them, love him. Community, meaning we want to love each other in the same way Jesus loves us. We recognize there's a a lot of mistakes and errors and faultiness in that under heaven. But nonetheless, we want to have a love for our neighbor in this room and outside of it. And particularly where we're going today, mission. This was the promise I gave to you before I left on vacation. To be able to talk a little bit about what it means to be a people who know Jesus so well that they start to somewhat in a compelled way love others. So we're going to touch on this this morning, spend a few weeks talking about the mission of God and how it works in our lives, and then we're going to wrap up the book of Philippians by ending the same way the Apostle Paul does here, talking to us about, in Philippians chapter 4, what it means to, to permanently dwell in the, in the rhythms of Jesus, to, to be a person who abides in his joy. And so today, you might be saying, well, if we're still in the book of Philippians, why are we studying the book of John? And the reason for this is we are taking these direct ideas that we have seen Paul writing about in the book of Philippians, and we're marrying them to the, to the root of where these things come from. As Paul tells us to follow Jesus, as Paul tells us to help our neighbors know Jesus, for us to grow in our love for him and neighbor, we want to go to the place, we, we want to basically go to the place where Paul went to find out why this is such a value in his heart. And that leads me to a story I want to share with you today. So most of you, if you know me, know that I, I've kind of lived in several places in the country. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and moved here in the 90s, and then to New Orleans, and then back here, became a Christian in Florida in my 20s. And I had a, a pretty storied upbringing in New York, a, a really great one. And I will never forget when I was a child, some of you will know this today, but I am to this day a huge baseball fan. And that didn't just start in my 20s. We are diehard Yankee fans in our house. And this sort of uh, was cultivated in my life when I was in single digits. And that began with this obsession I had as a young child with baseball cards. Now, in those days, it was guaranteed, no matter how I was making money, whether it was allowance or working or wherever, just finding it, wherever that money was coming from, it was likely going to be spent immediately on baseball cards. All right. So we had this local baseball shop uh, in my neighborhood, and we would go there regularly, and we got to know the owners, and we would trade cards, and it was like a little hustle fest at 10 years old. And we went in there one day, and I had noticed that there was a new baseball product called uh, baseball coins. Any of you familiar with what a baseball coin is? Some of you, do you have baseball here? Just check it. All right, so Baseball Coin was created by the perhaps the most famous baseball card company in America, Topps Baseball. And they've been making baseball cards for like 100 years. And they did this thing in the 80s called coins, which were literally like aluminum coins that they were really nice, that they came five to a pack, and they had a, a picture of baseball players on it. It was essentially a metallic baseball coin. And we were so obsessed with these things that when they came out, they were very expensive, but we just were always trying to buy them, you know, to collect our favorite uh, players. Metal coins with images of baseball players on the front side. More expensive, but we didn't care. And so one afternoon, I went by myself to the baseball card shop, and I bought a pack of these coins. And in those days, we used to call this pulling a coin or pulling a card, meaning you were trying to buy a pack that had the player you wanted in it. And even though I was a, a Yankee fan, I had a real affinity for a Met named Daryl Strawberry, who to this day, I still like him. He was a great outfielder, and his cards were always worth a lot of money. So those were high-value cards in those days. 
and I actually bought a pack of these metal coins and had a Daryl Strawberry coin in it. It was like striking gold for a 10 or 11 year old. And I was so excited that I put all the coins in my pocket and ran home. I wanted to basically put these in a safe place because I was just really jacked up about them. So in my excitement, I made a, a cardinal mistake. I actually ran up the wrong block. And let me explain what I, what I mean by this. So in my neighborhood, you grew up on a certain block. And depending on the block you were on, sometimes you were welcome on a block or not welcome. And I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying it could be somewhat dangerous to go up a block you did not really have permission to be on because there could likely be kids there who would know that and then make your life miserable. And that's what happened here. I grew up on a street called 69th, but I had all of my friends on a street called 70th, one block away. Major difference. And I wasn't even paying attention. I just ran up 69th Street because it was the quickest way to get home. Now, this might not sound like a big deal, but here's why it was. When I came up the block, I realized midway I had a problem because there was a crew of people there who knew who I was and knew that I really should not have been there. This sounds stupid, but it was just the way that it was. And so they, uh, they accosted me. They grabbed me midway up the block, reminded me that I was not supposed to be there. And then they began like shoving on me and pushing me around and just doing all the things that gorilla type people like that did back then. But that's what they did. They were shoving on me and pushing me around. And then eventually, it usually always ends up here, they started going through my pockets because if I had like $5 on me, they were just going to take it. And I didn't have any money. All I had was those coins because I had just spent it. But they took those coins out. And I lost my poker face at that point. When they took the coins out, they very clearly saw that they mattered to me. And the chief gorilla took these five coins and he looked at me and he started saying things like, oh, do these really matter to you? I didn't say anything because I didn't really want to like show my cards, no pun intended. But he said, they must matter to you. And then he just started dropping them one at a time on the ground. And I was infuriated, but I knew, I knew that in that pack of coins, four of them I could care less about, but one of them really, really, really mattered to me. And eventually, he dropped all the coins, and he got to that Daryl Strawberry coin. And he dropped it. I can still remember this to this day. It was sort of like a, a slow motion uh, story. And, and it hit the ground. I looked at it, and I, all these thoughts went through my head. I mean, I was thinking, like, man, that's like half of my life savings went to that, to that coin, and it's so messed up that this guy is doing this to me. And impulsively... And perhaps a better word is compulsively. I just felt like I, I had to do something there. It just, it just came over me. And so I did what anyone would have done. And if you were in my situation, probably what most of you would have done. I just punched the guy in the belly as fast as I could and ran home, picked the coin up and ran home. I mean, I was completely uh, enthralled with this coin and just went into survival mode. And I mean like burning holes in the bottom of my sneakers home. And I got home safely and never went up that block again. <laughs> Now, today's talk clearly is not about conflict resolution because that would be a very poor end game. Uh, that's not a gospel rhythm, but it was the way that it was when I was a young lost kid. But uh, the point of this is sort of an interesting one, and it does highlight uh, a tr very true heart attitude that anybody in their sane mind has in life. It highlights that when we deeply care about something or someone or something, we are often, and I think according to what we're going to study today, it's pretty fair to say we should be compelled to live in a way that matters for it, in a way where we are more likely to sacrifice for it, to take great risk for it, in some cases maybe even die for it. Baseball coins, you might say, that was sort of a, an embryonic heart attitude that God nurtured in my life as I got older, and he's really helped me, and not just me, but a great many of us, to, to live for the things that we love in life. And the ultimate thing, the ultimate person we can live for in life is Jesus. So these are rude attitudes that maybe begin in our childhood that are meant to be fulfilled in our pursuit of Christ. 
And this is the premise of what we're studying today in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And before I left for my vacation, we spoke about these, these key values, these things we should really be striving for in our life. Committed to Jesus' gospel, committed to church community, and committed to his mission. That's the promise that I made you before I left. I introduced it and said when I got back, we would, we would spend some time thinking and talking and praying through that. And in these verses, Jesus establishes, this is not the only place he talks about mission, but it is perhaps the most profound place where he talks about mission. He establishes the very thing we're going to talk about today. He commands his people, and keep in mind, we are his people, for those of us in Christ, to carry on his redemptive mission in the world, in the very same way God sent him into the world. He is telling us, if you love something, if you care about something, and the, the greatest affection we can have in life the one we are supposed to have in life is to pour our heart and our soul out into our pursuit of Jesus. That should start reshaping who we are, what we do, how we live, and the way we act. And this teaching is really trying to show us that just like Christ, when a person truly loves and experiences the love of God, the natural result should be a compulsion, a healthy compulsion, to live sacrificially for God and to share that same love with others. You don't go to the cross for humanity unless you have a love for God and humanity. There is a compelling drive. One we'll read very briefly in the back end of our talk today in 2 Corinthians where Paul tells us bluntly, when you love Jesus, when you really get what that means, you should be compelled to live with the love of Jesus in your life for the sake of others. And so today, our Philippian series is going to take its final turn. We've got about five weeks left here, give or take a little bit. As we begin to examine in detail all of the gospel promises we've learned about in Philippians, they're all online if you've not been here to listen to. What we have to know is those promises were given to us but they were not just meant for us. And we know this particularly because Jesus commissioned us to share them with the rest of the world here in John chapter 20. He's going to tell us the very thing he has given us, his peace, is meant to be brought to the rest of the world. And it is my hope that over these next weeks, as we look at these ideas and study them, as we pray for God to write these truths in our hearts, that we will get to the place where we are compelled, no matter where we are in mission. If you're not on it today, that's okay. God is a God of grace. But don't miss out on it. If you're deeply engaged in it, then we just want you to be more engaged in it. No matter how you approach mission today, please hear it is God's desire for you to grow more deeply into your love for it and the people that he wants to bless in your life because of him. And so there's, a, there's two ideas I want to talk about today. The first and foundational truth we'll examine requires that we talk a little bit about the theology of God's mission. It is important for us to know what mission is before we start figuring out how to reorient our lives around it. And I want to begin with a foundational truth, that God's redemptive mission has always existed. If you hear one thing today, I want it to be this. When we think about mission, it isn't like just on a Tuesday. It isn't something that just happened in the New Testament. It is something that has always existed, because God has always existed. Before I reread you John 20, I want to story up here for a moment. I want to give you a very brief subtext of what has led us to these handful of verses we're going to read today. So John 20, if you're a student of the Bible, you know, is post-resurrection, meaning a lot of the really crazy stuff has already happened. The disciples were running for their lives. Jesus has now come back. In fact, you know, he's got these holes in his hands that he shows his people here. He is post-resurrection, and he is now beginning to engage the world before he ascends and goes to back, to be, back to be with his Father in heaven. The, the epoch of the church we're in now, we're, we're waiting for him to come back again. So this is a pretty interesting story to read and to look through because it really highlights some of the very real challenges we face as we try to be on God's mission. 
the point of what I'm trying to make here is that here we have, you know, the disciples, and we think, well, they were the disciples. They had it all together. Their lives were great. But the truth is that they weren't always great, and they weren't always together. In fact, the disciples, the, the originators of the mission of Jesus, the, the person, the people he passed the baton to, they are literally right now cowering. They are not on mission. And so I want to neutralize the playing ground here and say it can be difficult for us to be on mission. And we're going to use this story to sort of sort through what that means. John 20, 19 through 21. God's redemptive mission has always existed. Here's how we know this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, there are people coming for their lives. Those associated with Jesus post-resurrection are being hunted for their lives right now in the first century world. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. He's validating, like, I did it. What I said I was going to do, I did. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord again. Their posture goes from fear to joy. This is where we're going in a few weeks in Philippians. This is where Jesus wants us, living in his joy. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And here's what we're going to talk about today and over these next week. They're joyful now. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I, I am sending you now. That's the first thing he tells them once they're joyed up. The way God sent me into the earth for you, I'm now sending you into the earth for others. God's mission has always existed. Now here's the, the antagonist in our, in our human story today. For some people, God's mission is just an afterthought in their life. But Jesus teaches us here that it has never been this way for God. We want to deconstruct the problem. Mission can't be an afterthought because Jesus said it can't be an afterthought. Now this whole message revolves around the idea of God's mission. And it's important, before we go any further, that we have at least a basic working definition of what God's mission is. There are many ways we can define this, but I want to define this from the human angle. So let's define this by, by, or define God's redemptive mission by reading this. It'll be behind me. God's mission is really the act of God breaking into the story of humanity. This means God, right? His truth, his gospel. God saw the plight of humanity, and he revealed himself to the people of the world in light of it. And in spite of it, we might even say. And he did this for a very specific reason. In order to redeem and restore those people suffering under the bondage of sin to himself. You know, the story of the Bible is sort of a simple one. God creates things that are very good. Sin enters the world and things get pretty rough. And then God makes things good again. At least he's in the process of making them good again right now. By, by the, the beauty of his son Jesus coming to the earth. And we're in that middle ground right now where Jesus has come. And God is still making things good. He's made them good once and for all. We just sang about this, and we're going to, in this I believe, and we're going to celebrate this here in communion. But in this intermediate stage of life, where we're in between, you know, Jesus coming back and the church area we're in, not everything is perfect or great, which means there's a need for the people of God to be on mission for Jesus, to be sharing the peace and the truth of God where our opportunities present themselves. Now, the reason I mention this is because some people believe that God's mission first began in the New Testament because of verses like this one. And what I simply mean by this is that Jesus seems to be inaugurating this here. Ben, will you pull up that definition, please? Just keep that one behind me while I talk through this. This definition here is not something that just began in the New Testament. It's something that is fulfilled in the New Testament. And the reason I mention this is because there is a bit of a misnomer today in modern Christian culture where we believe that, you know, mission began in the New Testament. However, that is not true if you read the Bible. And it's not true if you understand the nature of who God is. Mission is as ancient as God is. And God has always existed. And because God has always existed, God's mission has always existed. And I want you to understand what the nature of God's mission means. It means that he cares for people. 
So when we say God has always existed and his mission has always existed, what that means is God has always, his, his desire to care for people has always existed. There has never been a time where his creation, us, has not been valued and cherished by him. So much so to the point that when we stepped away from him, he redeemed us for it, offered us redemption. Now, I remember vividly seeing how off-base people could be with this, the mission of God particularly, while taking a class in seminary, where every student was requ required to write a theological paper. To graduate, we had to write this pretty lengthy paper and then orally defend it before a professor and peers. And in the class, one student chronicled mission movements in North America, essentially the way God had been working in our country and our continent. And he claimed that God's redemptive mission in the world began in the New Testament. It was almost like the Old Testament happened, and then God was like, and now I'm going to redeem a people for myself. And that's a real problem. Jesus' great commission, yes, is inaugurated in the New Testament, but the mission of God takes place from the very origins of the, New, of the Old Testament. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know why. The story of God's redemptive mission in the world begins unfolding on the very first pages of Genesis. And I want to give you just a quick summary of that story. A lens, if you will, that you can use to read through the scripture. The scripture is not just a disconnected set of ideas and truths. There is a narrative God is working through in it. And that narrative is how he is perpetually calling people back to himself. He's re-inviting us into a relationship that we transgressed. In Genesis we read that God perfectly created us in the world. And how sin corrupted the perfect creation in mankind when we walked away from God in the garden. And the effects of that were very severe. The effects of sin were severe. So severe that the earth pretty quickly turns into a place of wickedness and injustice. And everyone wants it to remain that way, except for Noah. And so you have this, this great story where people are in increasing ways rejecting God. And things get very bad. So bad that God judges the earth. Floods it. Now in the earliest chapters of the Bible... The reason we can say confidently that mission has always been around is because in the earliest chapters of the Bible, we see people are in need of grace. And I don't say that in a hard way. I say that in a very real kind of good way. Grace is a very real thing. And the, the faultiness of humanity in the early chapters of Genesis, even today, show us that we are in need of grace. And God is a God who shows grace. And so despite this continual rejection of God's grace, this is all that's happening in the early chapters of Genesis. In chapter 8, God makes a covenant with Noah to never destroy the earth again like that. In the face of rejection, God says, rather than judgment, when we move forward, I want to move forward with blessing. His desire is, not, is, is to bless his creation. And the way God blesses his creation, you can parse this a million ways and it can have very different tangible effects on a daily basis. But the best way, the most profound way, the blessing, if you will, that shapes all blessings is the fact that God offers, invites you, and asks you to dwell into a permanent relationship with Him. That is the blessing God most wants to show us in the world. And He does this by, time and time again, giving us chances to come to Him and to stay in Him, to remain in Him, using the New Testament language, to abide in Him. Right? So judgment is, uh, excuse me, there's craziness going on in the world, and God responds with grace. Judgment, then grace. In Genesis 12... God then sets the stage for how he begins to bless the people of the world. There's this, this continual unfolding of how God's blessing increases and grows. And he does this interesting thing. He sets apart a guy named Abram, who most of you now know as Abraham. And he says, listen, uh, the way I have chosen to bless the world is to set apart you, and you will create a nation one day called Israel, whose sole purpose in life, lots of responsibilities, but their sole purpose in life is to be a blessing to the world. By proclaiming through their words and deeds 
yet another opportunity to come back to the God who loved them. They are a people, a community of people, shaped and fashioned by God, who are supposed to be investing in and inviting people into the kingdom of God. Sound like a parallel for the church today? Same idea, right? Now Israel, much like the church, has this hit and miss record of being a blessing to the world. There are days when they do it well and days when they don't do it so well. The rest of the Old Testament chronicles how much of Israel and the world kind of rejects God's offer. Even Israel gets to some hard places with God. They start missing the root of how God wants to bless them. However, that doesn't stop God from doing what God does, and that's keeping his promises. Over thousands of years, God, God is teaching his people and correcting his people and constantly reminding them that the roads they are walking down are not the ones he wants them to be on. And that leads us to this book of the New Testament called Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. The story of Israel rolls right into the New Testament genealogy of Matthew. And there we learn how God ultimately makes good in his redemptive promise. Thousands of years, this promise is fulfilled after he gives it. It's once and for all through the bloodline of Abraham that God blesses the world permanently by sending the world his son Jesus. That is the end game, if you will, in blessing. And the end of the blessing is that Jesus dies for us, redeems us, and then offers us this, this permanent relationship with his Father in heaven. It is another opportunity to come back to God. That is what Jesus represents. It's who he is. He is the gateway for us to be in the presence of God. Now, hear me here. I just went through like 5,000 years of biblical history in five to six minutes. It's a great story, and I would encourage you to, to read in detail all the gaps I didn't have time to address. But today, I want, you to, I want to be 30,000 feet in the air. I want us to get the big picture. This very brief biblical survey shows us that God's mission of redemption doesn't just begin with Jesus. It just reaches its apex in him. God was always pursuing the world and the people in it. And now this is our season to be pursued and to pursue others. Pursue others. So as you read the Bible, I want to encourage you to read it through the lens of mission, to recognize how central this is to our faith and life, to see God's redemptive grace as a small wave. Think about it this way. It's sort of a small wave, a ripple, if you will, in the very first chapters of Genesis. Like, throw a pebble in the pond, you see a little bit of a ripple. But that ripple, over thousands of years, turns into a pretty large wave. And I think it's pretty fair to say, the way I like to describe this is that when, when the wave of Jesus hits the, the shore of the New Testament world, it's actually a tsunami of grace. What happens is, is it's like this tidal wave now. And God lands, breaks into history, and says, my son is here. This is the beginning of the unraveling of what happened in the past. I'm going to once and for all bless the world. At least one of you amen that. <laughs> You're like, blessing the world, cosmic grace, who cares about that stuff? I'm ready for lunch, right? So listen, just mess with you. Understanding God's mission like this matters. Understanding why you are in Jesus matters. Because God has had a... He's had this amazing thought, this plan, this idea for your life since the beginning of time. Since before time as we know it. It clearly shows us mission has never been an afterthought on God's heart, ever. And it shows us, if you really think about what this means, it shows us that we have never been an afterthought on God's heart. That's what his mission represents. And this is why it's important that we don't live our lives in such a way that people are an afterthought in our lives. We cannot experience the grace of Jesus like that and dwell briefly, I'm very briefly touching on this, in this amazing love that God has for us, this redemptive love displayed on the cross, and then, and then forget that that love is meant to be passed on 
The eternal nature of God's mission shows us God takes his redemptive mission so seriously he is compelled to die for it, to give his son up for us to accomplish it. And so the question you have to ask yourself in this first truth this morning is, do, do you, do I, do we take this as seriously as God does? Have we ever thought about mission from this angle? And do we, do we recognize the value it has in God's heart and, and live, in imperfect ways obviously, but live the mission out in our own lives? Have you made blessing the people in your life by sharing the good news of, of the gospel of Jesus through your words and your deeds? Both matter. A priority like God has. That's a big request. It's a big challenge. I get it. That's why we're going to spend a few weeks talking through this. But I want to leave you on a strong measure of hope this morning. I don't want to leave you with big challenge. That's important. But, uh, but you need to know that where God gives big challenges, he also gives us himself to accomplish them. And so the command Jesus gives us to carry on the mission of God is a big task. It's also a very joyful task. And it's one that the Bible says we can accomplish on our own. It's good to know that. This is something God says we are supposed to be engaged in, but we cannot fully accomplish on our own. Thankfully, God gives us a great gift to get the job done. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. The foundation for getting on the mission of God is built upon personally experiencing the peace of God. Once you recognize God's mission has always existed, there's really two things that have to happen here. You have to experience the peace of God. You have to, re you have to experience the redemptive grace of Jesus. And when you truly taste of that, that starts reshaping who you are. It starts causing you to think in ways and act in ways that maybe were never priorities in your life or heart. I want to reread John 20, 21 through 22. Again, Jesus says this twice. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I am sending you. And then with that, he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Pretty interesting if you think about it. They're afraid. He offers them his joy. He says, listen, go change the world. Whatever circle that is, I don't have any naive understandings of that. Change the world means labor well where God has planted you, whether that's a million people or half of one. And then he says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. Not only am I going to send you out to do this, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. My spirit will indwell you. My presence will be with you. And so in verse 22, Jesus fulfills this, this long-awaited gospel promise of giving his followers the peace of his Holy Spirit. And this is an incredibly important promise for us because we all know people were created to live with peace in their hearts. We were created to live with peace and joy in our hearts. How do we know this? Think about a time. Maybe your time is right now. You never get up and say, today is the day I want to be without joy and peace. We don't say that. Same people don't say that, right? And when we are without peace, when we are plagued with depression or anxiety, when we are struggling, when, when the absence of what God wants us to be defined by is no longer defining our lives, it is a terrible way to live. And in our hearts we should know it feels terrible, and it is terrible, because we were not built to live that way. But the reality of a challenged and broken and fallen, fallen world says there are going to be times when these emotions, when these feelings are very real. I'm not negating them. I'm just saying that is not the end game for your life or for mine. God wants something greater for us. And this is why when we find ourselves without peace, we often devote great amounts of energy to finding it again. Sometimes this can be so significant that out of desperation, we might even turn to things that are not Jesus, stuff like stuff, substances, money, relationships, the usual suspects. There's a whole roster of them in life, hoping they will restore peace to our hearts, only to find out that, that they cannot and will not. At least not to the way Jesus can. Maybe they can be a fix for a season. But they cannot fix 
what only Jesus cannot fix. You cannot receive the peace of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit through those things. Or the ones I haven't mentioned. And so according to Jesus, having peace in your heart is essential to living a meaningful life. And the disciples, the reason I read this story to you this morning, is because the disciples are in this very place. They're not like on the top of the mountain killing it for Christ right now. They are in a room cowering, fearing for their lives, hiding, denying the fact that they even know Jesus. The disciples learned this truth firsthand. In verse 19, John tells us they were cowering behind locked doors, worried for good reason, I might add, that the authorities who killed Jesus were going to kill them too. There was a manhunt going on for Jesus who had already been taken, he had been murdered on the cross, and the people that were following him. What's most interesting about this is you think, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You would think, right, that at this point there's already rumors spreading of the fact that Jesus has come back. They've seen him do the miracles. They've seen him do everything. They have been in the presence of Jesus physically. You would think now that the guy who resurrects himself would, would stop this. You would think that when they see this or get this, they would, they would not basically cower to fear or cower in fear. They would actually live in power and authority, but they don't. But Jesus is a good God. And so what happens here is he recognizes that they are being ruled by the, the principalities of life. And they have forgotten about the one who was in control of all life. And that's where this story picks up here. He comes in and he says, hey, I'm here. Look at this. Look at this. I'm here. Peace be with you. Now take my Holy Spirit and go change the world. What's interesting about this is that their fear, the disciples now, their fear robs them of Christ's promised peace. They dwell in an attitude that is antithetical to us finding joy in Christ. It's an attitude we're going to address in full in a few weeks. God is, God is a God who doesn't want us to be afraid. And we cannot be afraid in life because God is a good God who holds our lives in his hands. They're at this interesting place where they are paralyzed by fear, the fear of what could happen to them if they begin to publicly live for Jesus. They fear rejection, ridicule, being ostracized, and in this case, legitimately fearing for their lives. And in order to help them overcome their fear, this is sort of how we'll begin to wrap up this morning, Jesus gives them his peace. He gives them a very particular word. It's a word that's sort of a colloquial term today. Uh, peace is one. We'll talk about this here in a minute. But he gives them his, his shalom. That's the word that's used here. Now in our culture, when we say the word peace, it usually evokes a myriad of cultural expressions like the peace movements of the 60s, uh, graffiti peace signs on interstate overpasses, uh, people throwing up two fingers in the air and using it as a greeting. I actually say it quite a bit, um, not in a colloquial way, but in this sort of way. It's just something that years ago just became a bit of a habit. Uh, I'll say, you know, hey, peace, peace to you. And this is all good. However, the, the concept of biblical peace, of shalom, is far deeper than trivial cultural expressions. We want to look at the biblical idea of what's being spoken about here. I'll share with you a quote. It'll be behind me. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga, famed Christian philosopher, describes it this way. Really sharp dude, well worth reading, very accessible, but just deep and rich. He, he explains God's shalom, God's peace like this. He says, God's shalom is the webbing together of God humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight. It's a rich taste of affairs in which all natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior, Jesus. Remember, he is the, the glue that creates the peace in our lives. As its creator and savior, Jesus opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. We have an inborn sense of shalom. We have an inborn sense of desire for this. It is home, 
and we long to return to it. Let me explain to you what he's saying here. That inborn sense of peace we just spoke about, that all people long to have, that's not coincidence. It isn't human coincidence. It isn't a common, it is common in the sense that people long for it, but it's, it's uncommonly common, we might say. Because it is actually a mark that all people have been created in the image of God. We've been hardwired to live with this in our lives. We've been hardwired to shalom. <laughs> to, to not just see this as an, an experience or an emotion, but the way Plenega describes it, and the way Jesus describes it as you unpack his teachings, is it's sort of like a residence. It's like a place we live. It's not something you, you feel and then it goes away. Peace, like we're talking about here, is sort of like where you pitch your tent in life. It's where you set up your home. It's a place where God desires us to, to permanently dwell. All people have been created with this image. We've been hardwired to live in the eternal peace and promises of God. A peace that we lost when we transgressed God way back in Genesis. And it is to that sense of shalom that we all long to return to. This is the peace that Jesus offers his disciples here. Not this kind of peace. Like life-changing, earth-shattering peace. A peace that in this world is given to us in part. Meaning we can still have this peace in our lives and have days without it. Because we live in a fallen, broken world. But we will experience this in full upon Jesus' return. There is going to be a day when Christ eradicates all of this. When, when the second coming happens, and this is all over. When he once and for all restores his creation to a permanent shalom. To a shalom that can't be affected by sin. Because sin is no more. And so think of God's shalom like this. Let me leave you with a word picture. Two of them today. Think of God's shalom like this. And, and certainly think on this as we move to this table. If you want to know the way God restored peace to the earth, if you want to know the ultimate way he distributed his shalom to the earth, it's where we're heading here in about five minutes. Think of God's shalom like this. Imagine if the world was created to be a pristine glass vase. Beautiful, crystal clear, shiny. And that the sin, pain, and suffering people experience, the injustices of our world, cause that vase to shatter like glass hitting hard concrete. And have you ever seen thin glass hit concrete? What happens to it? Dude, you guys need to get out more. What happens to glass when it breaks, right? It disintegrates into half a million pieces, right? It is completely shattered. There's not even, there's not even a way to fix that. You just look at that and you're like, Where, where's the broom? That's got to be discarded. That's what glass does when it hits concrete. If you've ever seen glass break like that, you know it's broken beyond repair. And when we live without peace in our hearts, that's how we tend to see life. That's how it feels. Broken re beyond repair. Even the world at times, right? Shattered and broken. Pain beyond repair. Five minutes of BBC News today will validate what I'm saying right here. That's all you have to do. I can, I can no tolerate no longer than 10 minutes of news anymore in my life. I read it and stay up with it because I feel like it's important to be engaged in cultural affairs. But after 10 minutes, I can't take it anymore. It celebrates this right here. It doesn't tell ever the stories of redemption. But it is an evidence of the fact that stuff can be pretty messed up. However, those of us who have breathed in Jesus' redemptive peace know he has this unique ability to mend the broken glass in our lives. He sort of puts that stuff back together in ways we didn't think was possible. He brings healing and wholeness to our tattered hearts. He makes the impossible possible. This is what the shalom of God is. He starts mending hurts you didn't think could be mended. He starts restoring relationships that you didn't think could be restored. He starts helping you to dwell in his permanency, in his peace, in his grace. And that starts shaping life. He creates a peace that restores men and women to God. And according to Jesus, 
when we truly experience this shalom, when the pieces of your broken glass have been reassembled by the grace of Jesus, something should happen. And it's something that is not just for you or I. Yes, we get peace. We feel joy. All these things are, are benefits to us. But something else is also supposed to happen here. We should be compelled to share it with others. Thus, compelled to the mission of Jesus, what we're talking about over these next weeks. It's an impulsive, compulsive reaction. Listen to how Paul describes how experiencing Jesus' love and peace in our lives is being a, a catalyst for showing it to others. 2 Corinthians 5.14, it'll be behind me. It's a very brief verse, but a powerful one. For it is Christ's love that compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Our motive in life, our desire to know Jesus, love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and serve those without Jesus comes from this compelled reality of, of what it means to be in Christ. It means to experience the love of Jesus starts shaping how we show it to others. And that is all rooted in the fact that one died for all. So Paul is saying here in Corinthians, if you, if you claim to have uh, deeply experienced the shalom of Jesus in your own life, but could care less about it in others, you have to ask yourself. Or maybe, it's, maybe care less is too strong of a term. It's too sensational. Maybe there's a benign apathy. You have to ask yourself if you've truly experienced Jesus' love. And one thing you'll notice as you read the Bible is that when God gives us grace, it is always meant to be passed on to others. It's never Anthony Orzo, period. There's a comma after that. It's never your name and a period. You are part of a, a pendulum, if you will, swinging to distribute the grace of God until Christ's return. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who don't get this. They see their faith like a, a big five-gallon bucket. You ever see a five-gallon bucket fill up? It just fills up, and that's it. It becomes so we become retainers, if you will, for, for blessings and spiritual gifts and the graces of God. We, we sort of hoard and collect them, which is important, meaning we want to experience them. But we want to make sure that we don't ever function like a sponge, always asking to be filled up, but never caring to be wrung out for the sake of others. That's, there's a difference there. One is to be filled up for the sake of others. The other is to be filled up for the sake of self. That's a challenge of the Christian faith. You don't get the cross with that attitude. Jesus is filled up to pour himself out for us. And so this is the hallmark of the, of the modern consumer Christian. It's arguably the greatest challenge facing the modern North American church today. If you want my opinion, this is the greatest challenge. And God doesn't care for it because he says our lives should look more like colanders, not buckets. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, if you know what a colander is, you know that a, a colander is something that can be filled up and it can actually retain a very heavy level of water, but it is as quick as you're filling it up, it's being leaked out constantly being filled by God's goodness while simultaneously leaking that goodness out into others. That's what our lives should be, colanders, not five-gallon buckets. If you belong to Jesus, your mission is to carry his mission out in the world. You're to receive it, dwell in it, know that it is for you, but not just for you. If you believe like the disciples did, look at what turned their fear into joy. If you believe that he rose again, if you have heard him proclaim his peace, and you know that the Holy Spirit's been imparted to you. If you're in Christ, let me explain, you are in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. Then you have to know that over time, this should create, uh, your, your experience, if you will, of the riches of Jesus' redemption should compel your heart to, to care for others. Jesus is equipping you to labor for the mission of God. And so as we move to the communion table, if you need further proof of this, let me call your attention to the communion table. We're about to share this with each other. This right here is, is perhaps the great, it's not perhaps, it is the greatest example we have as far as what we do on a Sunday 
that exemplifies what we mean when we say we care for gospel community and mission. It is because of the truth of Jesus Christ that we know about this table. It is because of God's love for people and neighbor, those in the body and outside of the body, that the table exists. He dies to redeem us to him, and his sacrifice, when it is preached and proclaimed and shared, is still restoring men and women back to Jesus. It is the greatest example of how seriously God personally sees his mission of redemption. And I pray that as we move to it, you would ask yourself, as we move to communion and we begin to pray and process and meditate what we've spoken about this morning, ask yourself, is your heart compelled to act on behalf, on the behalf of others in the same way that Jesus has acted for you? Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his mission? And what is it you will do about it when you leave this place? Pray with me.